Hey everyone, welcome back to Adhering Apologetics. As always, this podcast is brought to you guys at patreon.com slash adhering apologetics. If you value what we do, please consider supporting for as little as a dollar a month. That'd be huge. Um, today, I have Josh Yen with me. We're going to be looking at Sam Harris's opening statement in his debate with William Lake Craig, where it's going to talk about like God and morality. So Josh, what's up, man? How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm super excited for today. Uh, we're going to look at the famous debate between Harris and Craig. I'll link the full debate down below. We're just going to look at uh, Sam Harris's opening statement. Josh, do you have anything you want to say before we get rolling here? I think this is a very interesting debate. I've, I remember watching it for the first time as a young kid or, or quite a while ago, actually, before I even started my YouTube channel. And it was, it was quite an interesting debate for a young person back then. I think it's one of those debates where it's quite a good debate to get into apologetics just because of how of at the level it's pitched at it's not necessarily some very abstract thing which you can sometimes find between perhaps Graham Oppie and, and Josh Rasmussen or some more complex things this is quite a good entry debate with important questions so it's definitely a debate which I highly recommend watching perhaps mm-hmm. a full video even though we don't um, of course cover the whole video in this um, reaction or response yeah definitely yeah I really value what Sam Harris says here like this isn't some video where we're trying to like dunk on Harris and be like oh look at his ideas destroyed there's a lot of like interesting ideas that we just want to like consider and think about here I'm going to bump the speed up to one and a half times speed just because it's a long speech in the context of like a response video um but yeah let's get rolling here again well first let me say it's an honor to be here at Notre Dame and I'm very happy to be debating Dr. Craig the uh, one Christian apologist who seems to put the fear of God into many of my fellow atheists. Uh, I've actually gotten more than a few emails this week that more or less read, brother, please don't blow this. Uh, so you will be the judge. Uh, now, as many of you know, I've spent a fair amount of time criticizing religion. Uh, and one of the perks of this job is that you immediately hear from all the people who think that criticizing religion is a terrible thing to do. Uh, and strangely, the reason people rise to the defense of God is not that there's so much evidence that God exists, but that they believe that belief in God is the only intellectual framework for an objective morality. Um, and clearly, Dr. Craig is uh, among their number. Now, the sense is that- Okay, so here's like, he gives like a brief little like intro sketch here. Uh, Josh, do you have any thoughts so far? I mean, there's not much uh, to, uh, I, I don't have much on my mind to say right now, though I do think it's quite interesting to, that he points out a framework because of course, frameworks are slightly different from just saying, I believe in a certain proposition. What he's talking about is the whole structure of belief. And I think that's something which we can keep in mind when we're talking about these moral discussions and of course, religious discussions as well, is that of course, sometimes it's very easy for us when you're talking about the cosmological argument to only talk about the individual proposition of the existence of God and only focus on that. But in some sense, all of that helps build towards a certain worldview and a certain framework. And that emphasis on a framework down the line is something which is quite interesting to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't have much to add other than like, I just like generally would like disagree with Sam Harris. And I just think that there are good reasons to think God exists. And it just doesn't come down to like, oh, like we need objective morality. So God, and that's not like the only reason that like, I believe that God exists. Um, but yeah, like kind of, kind of laid out the framework for the rest of the video. Is that without the conviction that moral truths exist, that, that words like right and wrong and good and evil actually mean something, humanity will just lose its way. That's the fear. And I, I actually share that. I've come to believe that this, this, concern that many religious people have of the erosion of secular morality is not an entirely empty one. I once spoke at a, a, an academic meeting on these themes, and I, and I said, as I will say tonight, that once we understand morality in terms of human well-being, we'll be able to make strong claims about which behaviors and, and ways of life are good for us and which aren't. Uh, and I cited as an example the sadism and misogyny of the Taliban as, as an example of a, a worldview that, that was less than perfectly conducive to human flourishing. And it turns out that to denigrate the Taliban at a scientific meeting is to court controversy. 
And after my remarks, I, I fell into debate with another um, invited speaker. And this is more or less exactly how our conversation went. She said, how could you ever say that forcing women to wear burqas is wrong from the point of view of science? I said, well, because I think it's pretty clear that right and wrong relate to human well-being. And it's just as clear that forcing half the population to live in cloth bags and beating them or killing them when they try to get out is not a way of maximizing human well-being. And she said, well, that's just your opinion. And I said, OK, well, let's make it even easier. Let's say we found a culture that was literally removing the eyeballs of every third child okay, at birth. Would you then agree that we found a culture that was not perfectly maximizing human well-being? And she said, it would depend on why they were doing it. So after my eyebrows returned from the back of my head, uh, I said, OK, well, let's say they're doing it for religious reasons. Let's say they have a scripture which says every third should walk in darkness or some such nonsense. Yeah. And then she said, well, then you could never say that they were wrong. Okay, and so I, I, you should know, I was talking to someone who has a deep background in science and philosophy. She's actually since been appointed to the President's Council on Bioethics. She's one of 13 people advising President Obama on all of the ethical implications of advances in medicine and, and uh, related science and technology. And she had just delivered a perfectly lucid lecture on the moral implications of, of neuroscience for the courts. And she was especially concerned that we could be subjecting captured terrorists to lie detection neuroimaging technology. Uh, and she viewed this as, as really an unconscionable violation of cognitive liberty. Uh, so on the one hand, her moral scruples were very finely calibrated to, to recoil from the slightest perceived misstep in ethical terms in our war on terror. And yet she was quite willing to forgive some primitive culture its fondness for removing the eyeballs of children in its religious rituals. And she seemed to be quite terrifyingly detached from the very real suffering of, of millions of women in Afghanistan at this moment. So I see this double standard as a problem. And strangely, this is precisely the erosion of basic common sense that many religious people are worried about. I hope it'll be clear to you at the end of this hour that religion is not an answer to this problem. A belief in God is not only unnecessary, for a universal morality, it's, 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 it is itself a source of moral blindness. Now, it's one oh, well, I accidentally went all the way back, but with that like little snippet, Josh, um, Sam emphasizes a couple of points, including like the importance of moral truths. What are your thoughts here? I think the question or the challenge of, of moral truths is something which is very, which is a hot debate, especially between Christians and atheists, and is, of course, as Craig puts it out in his moral argument, a very as in some sense, a very important part of our understanding of God. Now, of course, within Christianity itself, there is some debate about what the role of morality is. I think it's some, in some sense overly simplistic for some Christians to just throw out the moral argument and say, well, okay, there is one type of objective morality. There's a lot of different types of kind of Christian ethical frameworks, for example. There's natural moral law, divine command theory, and of course, a few others, in fact, um, a thinker called Burjayev presents an idea that all ethical thinkings and divine commands are merely presented as a tool to help us transcend good and evil. So, I mean, the framework of, of morality is actually quite broad. And I think sometimes it's important for us as Christians or at least as philosophically minded Christians to recognize that there is that difference. And I do think Sam does raise a lot of questions here about what type of values we're talking about. Are we talking about scientific values? Are we talking about moral values? What type of approaches are we taking to those values? And these things, I think, will be developed throughout his uh, presentation of how, a part of his opening statement. We'll be able to see different aspects in which he approaches the question of morality. What position of morality is he presenting and what position of morality is he holding? And also, how does that tie into, in a bigger scale, to the existence of God and also the need for God in morality? So I think uh, with his opening remarks here, it, it is starting to set the stage for his later arguments. Yeah, I think one thing that I just want to say that like I emphasize that I actually like agree with Sam Harris is, is he really seems to emphasize like the importance of there being these like moral truths. Um, we, we could come up with all sorts of examples, like even just looking at history of like horrendous acts of evil. And I think Sam and I, it seems like would surely agree that like, yeah, we need to have some sort of framework to say like, well, this is just like objectively wrong. 
Um, and yeah, I mean, I just think we're on the same page in that front. Obviously the question kind of like you suggested is going to be like, how can we like ground this or make sense of this? But there's a point of agreement. I think that um, a lot of Christians may have with Sam Harris, at least on that point. Hmm. I definitely agree with you in, in that aspect. And I definitely think that of course the objective morals framework is something which seems to be a given for both Craig and Harris. So it is something which both of them are taking as, um, as a given for their debate though, of course, the way they use objective morality and what it stands for might actually be a bit different and perhaps we could touch upon that in, in, a, in a bit. For sure. A belief in God is not only unnecessary for a universal morality, it's, 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 it is itself a source of moral blindness. Now it's widely believed that there are two quantities in this universe. There are facts on the one hand and of course science can give us our most rigorous discussion of these. But then there are values, which many people like Dr. Craig think science can't touch. The questions of meaning and morality and what life is good for. Now, of course, everyone thinks that science can help us get what we value, okay, but it can never tell us what we ought to value. Okay, and, and therefore, it cannot, in principle, be applied to the most important questions in human life, questions like how we should raise our children or what constitutes a good life. Now, it's thought, from the point of view of science, and Dr. Craig just gave voice to this opinion, that when we look at the universe, all we see are patterns of events. Just one thing follows another. Okay, and, and there's no corner of the universe that, dis that declares certain of its events to be good or evil or right or wrong. Apart from us, I mean, our minds, we declare certain events to be better than others. But in doing that, it seems that we're merely projecting our own preferences and desires onto a, a reality that is intrinsically value-free. Okay, what are you thinking here, Josh? I think what he raises here is a very interesting debate on in moral philosophy about, well, how are we meant to uh, find or develop our understanding of morality? And as I think we'll discuss or understand a bit later, he seems to be heavily relying on moral intuition when it comes to these debates, but at the same time, he seems to be focusing on the relationship between the is and the ought, and almost a branching between those two ideas. And it's something which has has its kind of precursors in, in the works of Mill, who who tries to have an empirical approach to ethics. And I think, in some sense, you could kind of see Harris as a development of Mill's theory, in the sense that Mill was very focused on in his utilitarianism to to figure out how we can justify certain ethical frameworks and his ultimate idea was the maximization of, of pleasure or happiness and in some sense he was saying well okay how do we do it because everyone was desiring it and in, in the same way there seems to be a similar form of argument here with Harris by saying well why is why is uh, universal happiness or ultimate human welfare or well-being the ultimate good and why is that the objective framework because people seem to be desiring it and then from that he applies moral intuition so in some sense it seems that his argument here is heavily lied on uh, dependent on his empirical framework, his empirical understanding of the world. And I think it's an interesting approach to do it. Whether that is or distinction is truly is truly vital or whether it could be collapsed, I think he will develop it later on in his in his discussion. But I do think it is a very good place for us to start off with when we're thinking about the different frameworks and questions that he is wrestling with to build the groundwork and the framework of his philosophy. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I could be wrong, kind of like you said, Josh, it seems like a lot of like, what Sam Harris is trying to do when he's developing like this moral framework is like kind of like look at that power of intuition. Like it seems like we have these like basic like seemings about a lot of like moral questions. Um, not all of them. Like obviously there's complex questions where people have like very different opinions on. Um, but some things like say like killing someone for fun is wrong um, or like torturing someone because you want to is wrong. Like these things are just like very apparently like just wrong. Um, and it seems like there's a very like sound and solid intuition throughout history for a lot of those things for most people um that these things are in fact like moral truths about the world so yeah that's kind of what i got and where do our notions of right and wrong come from well clearly they've been drummed into us by and and 
social emotions, and then they get modulated by culture. We take sexual jealousy, for instance. And this is an attitude that has been bred into us over millions of years. Okay, our, our ancestors were highly covetous of one another, despite the fact that everyone was covered with hair and had terrible teeth. <laughs> and this, this possessiveness now gets enshrined in various cultural institutions like the institution of marriage. Okay, so therefore, a statement like, it's wrong to cheat on one's spouse, it seems a mere summation of these contingencies. It seems like it, it, it's an improvisation on the back of biology. It seems that from the point of view of science, it can't really be wrong to cheat on your spouse. Okay, this is just, just how apes like ourselves worry when we learn to worry with words. Okay, now here is where religious people, like Dr. Craig, begin to get a little queasy, as I think they should. Okay. And many see no alternative but to insert the God of Abraham, an Iron Age God of war, into the clockwork as an invisible arbiter of moral truth. Okay, it is wrong to cheat on your spouse because Yahweh deems that it is so. Which is curious, because in other moods, Yahweh is perfectly fond of genocide and slavery and human sacrifice. I must say, it's pretty amusing to hear Dr. Craig in his opening remarks say that I'm merely focused on the flourishing of sentient creatures on this planet. If that's a sin, I'll take it. One wonders what Dr. Craig is focused on. Now, incidentally, you should not trust Dr. Craig's reading of me. Half the quotes he provided from me as though I wrote them were quotes from, from people I was quoting in my book and often to different effects. So you'll have to read the book. Uh, now, in, in claiming that values reduce to the well-being of conscious creatures, as I will, uh, I'm, I'm introducing two concepts. Okay, so before we get into these concepts, Josh, what are your thoughts on like this little clip here about like God and morality and like evolutionary desires and whatnot? I do think he raises a few interesting points, and I do think that um, his point on evolutionary desires are, are is quite um, good, and uh, perhaps you could talk a bit more about that because perhaps you, you've done a bit more research on that than I have. But I do think when it comes to the idea of morality, especially the, his relationship between well-being and and morality. That's, I think, one of the key areas of distinct of distinction between Craig and Harris in a structural um, uh, setting. Because I, when we're looking about uh, about Harris's view, his objectivity lies from a fundamentally consequentialist framework about what actions would produce the, the greatest amount of human flourishing or the human uh, well-being. So, in some sense, it's less of the objective values of the individual actions itself, but rather their utility in in producing a certain outcome, which Sam Harris finds desirable. Now, of course, is that objective? Well, it can be objective in comparison or in relation to the framework he's providing. But of course, that's a different idea from the divine command theory of William Lane Craig, who's saying that things are objectively right and wrong because they're intrinsically good or evil. If God commands X to be good, then that's good. Now, of course, that's an over, oversimplification of what divine command theory is. But I think it is a good place to, or a good thing to note that in some sense, when they're both saying we believe in objective morality, they're talking about somewhat of a different thing or a different philosophical framework, just because when we're talking about the consequentialist framework, it is something is good in relation to a certain other outcome, which is human flourishing in the case of Sam Harris. And I think that ties further back, if we're going to take this step further back to the framework discussion of, well, is God necessary for objective moral values? Well, then that's going to clearly have implication about the different frameworks, because if you're defining objective morality in a consequentialist framework, then unless God is in somewhat in your consequences, then it's almost uh, by definition, you don't really need God strictly for objective morality in that sense. But at the same time, if, of course, you're taking objective morality to mean that certain actions are intrinsically right and wrong, by that framework, then you could perhaps make the case that it's almost by nature of, of accepting that framework, you're requiring God in that framework to make that make sense. So I think us understanding the different frameworks and the different meanings of objective morality is something which is very helpful when we're approaching this debate and also listening to the works of Sam Harris to make things clearer. Mm, yeah, I think that is very helpful, Josh. 
Um, the distinction here, we're looking at like Craig's divine command theory and then Sam Harris's view where we're looking at like human flourishing and like how this seems to almost like line up with like a consequentialist uh, framework. That's a very interesting point that you brought up and I need to think about that uh, some more for sure. One point that I just want to make, um, I don't really know, like I'm not like, oh, like this just disproves like Sam Harris's view or anything like that, but it's just something to think about is it seems to me like we have a lot of like desires um and maybe you can even line this up with morality that are not just like evolutionary uh alvin plantinga has a good quote where he talks about things like literature poetry music art math logic philosophy nuclear physics even the project of evolutionary biology itself play humor exploration and adventure these are things that like humans seem to find as like good um hiking up boulders cliff jumping uh with a parachute obviously um or like physics or like all this stuff that like we seem to like think is like either like cool or valuable or like even like intrinsically like good like like music it seems like it's just like objectively like beautiful as, as some people would say um and these are things that like don't really seem to make sense on like an evolutionary framework where like our moral ideas just come from like evolutionary history so um, it's just an interesting like kind of thought I had when Sam was talking that like maybe not everything, um, our moral intuitions and desires just line up with like evolutionary goals. Mm. And something which I think is quite interesting on that point is I think Sam, or at least when we're reading Sam, we, it's important for us to try to figure out whether he is suggesting that that evolutionary biology or the results of that evolutionary biology is directly in line with what he considers to be objective morality, because I think there is some vagueity there about part of him, or at least part of me interpreting what he's arguing here, is that that evolutionary process develops the, the situation of set of values which best develops human or best uh, leads or best leads to human flourishing. But at the same time, there seems to also be a part where he's kind of saying, well, all right, some cultures have evolved to develop a worse form of morality and others seem to develop a more sophisticated form of morality. And, and that seems to be a bit of it uh, of, a contradiction or at least an inconsistency there so i think his it's it's important or at least it'll be nice to figure out exactly how he relates evolutionary morality as something uh, as something which may help his argument towards objective morality or perhaps his evolutionary morality is just a way to say well it seems like we're tending towards a correct view but we're not exactly there yet so i think his view of evolutionary of evolution and its relation to human well-being is something which is quite interesting to look at perhaps a bit further Mm -hmm. And I do want to emphasize one more point. Um, and I think it's the idea of like, like in a Christian, like view, typically like the question of like, well, like, where does this idea of like right and wrong come from? Um, it doesn't just come to like the idea of like God's like arbitrary commands, like maybe like one day he's like, Oh, I don't really like the idea of like people like eating like gummy worms. And he's just like, okay, gummy worms are just morally wrong. Um, that's not how it like most Christians would say God works when it comes to like moral commands and whatnot. Uh, the view I like lean towards is something that I do, like an idea that like um, what is right and wrong stems from like the perfect nature of God, where God is something like just the good, um, like something akin to like a classical theist view, even though I'm not a classical theist myself, I don't think. Um, but like something along those lines where God just is the good and God's commands come from him being the good would make sense of like moral commands and whatnot, where it's kind of like God revealing just like the moral truths about the world um, because those moral truths are just like within God. Uh, that's a very rough sketch of something that I would say about how it makes sense of like God and morality. Uh, but I think it's just helpful here to consider like when we're thinking about like what this idea of like where do these moral truths and commands like come from? Consciousness and well-being. Now let's start with consciousness. This is not an arbitrary starting point. Imagine the universe devoid of the possibility of consciousness. Imagine the universe entirely constituted of rocks. 
It is clearly no happiness or suffering in this universe. There's no good or evil. Value judgments don't apply. For, for changes in the universe to matter, they have to matter, at, le at least potentially, to some conscious system. But what about well-being? Well, the well-being of conscious creatures and the link between that and morality may seem open to doubt, but it shouldn't. So here's the only assumption you have to make. Imagine a universe in which every conscious creature suffers as much as it possibly can, as much as it possibly can for as long as it can. They call this the worst possible misery for everyone. The worst possible misery for everyone is bad. If, if, if the word bad applies anywhere, it applies here. Now, if you think the worst possible misery for everyone isn't bad, or maybe it has a silver lining, or maybe there's something worse, I don't know what you're talking about. And what's more, I'm pretty sure you don't know what you're talking about either. What I'm saying is that the minimum standard of moral goodness is to avoid the worst possible misery for everyone. If we should do anything in this universe, if we ought to do anything, if we have a moral duty to do anything, it's to avoid the worst possible misery for everyone. And the moment you admit this, you admit that, that, that all other states of the universe are better than the worst possible misery for everyone. You have the, the worst possible misery for everyone over here and all these other constellations of experiences arrayed out here. And because the experience of conscious creatures is dependent in some way on the laws of nature, there will be right and wrong ways to move along this continuum. It will be possible to think you're avoiding the worst possible misery for everyone and to fail. You can be wrong in your beliefs about how to navigate this space. Okay, what do you think about uh, Sam Harris's idea here, Josh? I think his idea is, is quite interesting. I, I think one thing which we could touch upon is his statement here, which is kind of the fundamental axiom of his, of his ethical system, if you call it that, which is the idea that well-being is good and suffering is bad. And now, of course, it seems to be an evident statement, but I do think that it almost is the devil lies very much in the detail about why we grant it. It's not so much so as how we grant or if we grant it, also why is it the case? Is it as self-evident as we expect and whether whether we really view it as one thing which is objectively true and what do we mean by well-being? Because I could very much think of another universe, another possible world in which certain things which are which may help the well-being of humans might not help the well-being of another species of animals or another species of conscious creatures in another possible world. Now that's the case, and if there are two different worlds with equally different moral standards, which both help the well-being of creatures, and on what basis are certain things objectively correct and objectively wrong? I think there's further challenges there from that aspect. And also, there's also a question of whether, well, okay, how did we come to this conclusion? Have we just evolved to come to this conclusion? Or is this just something which we've been granted and that's something we accept? Or whether there is perhaps a further philosophical grounding for why we have this statement or why we've come to this belief. And I think all of these questions would ultimately lead to the reasons for why William Lane Craig and Sam Harris disagree with each other. Mm. Yeah, I think this is a very like helpful point because I think for a lot of people, like when Sam, like Sam Harris brings up this example of like the universe with like a maximal amount of suffering, um, we're like, this is just bad. I think just about everyone listening to this is like, yes, you're right. Like we don't want that universe with like a maximal amount of suffering. But then I think to me, like the question then becomes, okay, where do we go from there? Um, can you just mute Mike? There's or Mike, Josh, there's a little bit of static on no here. Um, but then, so we had that question, right? And it's like, obviously like that's wrong. And the question is why, like, why is this the case that like well-being is good and suffering is bad? Um, is it just like, just like a, I don't want to say arbitrary, but like, is that just the, like the foundational truth? Um, can we go further to explain like, why is this the case? And yeah, it's just an interesting question, Josh. And I think highlighting that you really helped people like the other people listening to this, just like to think about it a little bit more. All right. Well, if we're going to keep going, I'm going to play the next part right now. So here's my argument for moral truth in the context of science. Questions of right and wrong and good and evil 
depend upon minds. Yeah, they depend upon the possibility of experience. Minds are natural phenomena. They depend upon the laws of nature in some way. Okay. Morality and human values, therefore, can be understood through science because in talking about these things, we are talking about all of the facts that influence the well-being of conscious creatures. In our case, we're talking about genetics and neurobiology and psychology and sociology and economics. Now, I view this space of all possible experience as a kind of moral landscape with peaks that correspond to the heights of well-being and valleys that correspond to the lowest suffering. And the first thing to realize is that there may be many equivalent peaks in this space. There may, may be many different but morally equivalent ways for human beings to thrive, but there will be many more ways not to thrive. There will be many more ways to fail to be on a peak. There are clearly more ways to suffer unnecessarily in this world than to be sublimely happy. All right. What are your thoughts here, Josh? Well, I think there is, it, what he presents is a very interesting dynamic between good and evil, because what he seems to say is that there's a lot of different forms of good, whereas there's also a lot of different forms of evil, in so much as what is good for some person might not be very good for someone else, and also what is might not be bad for, what, well, what might be bad for someone might be bad for someone else. And, and that does lead to a further question of what actually does he mean by objective, of course, taking back to the distinction between consequentialism and um, of or deontology of, of William Lane Craig's divine command theory. It seems, to be, it seems to me that his reliance on consequentialism allows the objective values to apply to the framework of the consequentialist theory instead of the actual actions themselves. And, and that would seem to then raise a further question about what he actually does believe in when he says, well, okay, the gouging out of eyes of children is objectively wrong. What does he mean by that? Is it purely objectively wrong because of gouging out the eyes of children is wrong in itself? Or is it because of the fact that gouging out the eyes of children is wrong due to his consequential theory? That is also something which um, has to be brought in mind. And another thing which I think is very interesting is the demandingness objection, which is often uh, held against utilitarianism, but I think it's somewhat um, applied against here because if he's purely arguing that okay, what is good is about maximizing human well-being, then, then that does lead the challenge of well saying, well, all right, from a scientific point of view, what is, the, what is the state of maximal well-being from a scientific point of view? And if that's the case, then surely we should be expecting everyone to become superhumans, not superhumans in that kind of like Superman sense, but rather become like a really fit person, look after their bodies perfectly, and then look after their minds perfectly. And in some sense, what is scientifically perhaps but objectively, objective measures the best human being or the, the human being with the best well physical or spiritual or psychological well-being that could be a standard which is way too high to conceivably ask for anyone to meet and if that's the case then well okay how where do we draw the line and where is the le minimal level for us to reach or cross that threshold and well on the inverse of it how how far low do we go before it switches from good to evil i think all of these challenges or at least all of these nuances have to be illustrated further for us to grant it as a satisfactory theory, especially if we're viewing it under almost a consequentialist framework. All those standards have to be held specifically in order to call it a purely objective moral framework, because the entire purpose of him wanting to develop an objective moral framework is to say, well, gouging out the eyes of children is objectively bad. The whole process is objectively bad. But if there is no way in which we can purely draw that line of saying, well, okay, up to this level, things are good. Beyond that level, things are good. Or beyond that level, things are bad. Well, then that idea of objective morality, even if you have an idea of, okay, well-being is that goal we're working towards, the, speci the specificity of that goal is not sufficient in order for us to justify the applicability of it to individual actions in an objective sense. Yeah. I think that, like, maybe, like, one thought I have, Josh, here is I'm thinking about, like, your, like, the idea of, like, the extremely fit and, like, the demandingness objection, because this is something, this is not something that I have, like, thought about a lot. 
but like couldn't someone that like maybe this is like akin to like a view of someone like Harris just say like well maybe like sure you don't have to be like the most physically as fit like physically fit as you possibly could but maybe you just have like a moral obligation to be kind of fit um and maybe you have a moral obligation just to be like meant in a mental sense to be kind of sharp you don't have to like read every book and like spend your whole life trying to pursue knowledge but like like have a good idea of what's going on and those are kind of like the broad obligations that we have could someone say something like that I think someone definitely can say something like that, but then the problem will then be is that it seems to be entering or at least it seems to be appealing to a different standard apart from well-being because then, well, mm. on what standard are we judging what is considered as sufficient well-being? You almost have an infinite regress problem of, well, okay, we have the standard of well-being here, but then at the same time, the ideal of that well-being seems to be insufficient to purely stratify it. So as a result, we need to apply a, another framework to stratify. But if that's the case, then, well, how does that further framework, that framework of just enough, how does that relate to well-being? Is it truly based on well-being? But then if it's truly based on well-being, then it, I think it does lead to almost a circular form of, of reasoning. And, and while, of course, there's there are people who might say, well, okay, well-being is just one of the many possible justifications for our theory, I do think that then it, it would then require further development from Harris's theory. And I'm not saying this to say, well, Harris is wrong, but I, I am saying it to kind of point out possible areas in which Harris's argument might need to be developed, or at least certain areas in which the argument as itself, that framework as itself might not be sufficient to reach the goal that he's arguing towards, which is objective morality for certain actions being objectively wrong or could be rightfully condemned directly. I do think that like another like important distinction where I mean I'm not like a Sam Harris expert like I haven't read any of his books I haven't listened to a lot of what he said beyond a few debates and maybe like a few podcasts here and there um but like when he talks about like well-being the question then to me is like okay well are we talking about the well-being it seems like to me he's saying something like that we should consider like each conscious creature um their well-being when considering a moral act to me that makes more sense of like what Sam's saying um but if someone is going to say more broadly like we should just be concerned with like the well-being of society it seems like to me that opens the door um, to the justifications of people that have done like horrendous acts in history um, saying, oh, I'm just trying to help like the well-being of society. So I think that's also an important thing that you have to be like very precise about um, when you're espousing like a view like Harris, because you want to make sure that like we're taking care of like the vulnerable, the weak, um, things like that, and like the well-being of each conscious creature. Because if we're going to make a broad statement, and I'm not saying that Sam says this, but if someone does make a broad statement like um, that like we should be considered about the well-being of society as a whole, then we're going to potentially be like be leaving the vulnerable out. And that's a very like big problem for like a moral system if that's what you're going to do. Definitely. I do think that in a lot of these discussions, the, the devil lies in the detail and of course how we approach it, how we approach individual terms is important. And of course, as you're saying, well, what are, on what basis are we looking at well-being is also a very important framework to understand well. What are this, what's the scope of our, our discussion, especially if it's a consequentialist theory? Uh, how do we judge the, the, the impacts of your actions and how does that how do the, does the consequences of your actions apply? Do we, are we judging it from the perspective of the community as a whole, the individual well-being? And of course, if it's somewhere in between, where exactly do we draw the line? I think that's a very important distinction that you pointed out. Most definitely. Now, the Taliban are still my favorite example of a culture that is struggling mightily to build a society that's clearly less good than many other societies on offer. The average lifespan for women in Afghanistan is 44 years. They have a 12% literacy rate. They have the highest, almost the highest infant mortality and maternal mortality in the world, and almost the highest fertility. So this is one of the best places on earth to watch women and infants die. It seems to me perfectly obvious that the, the best response to this dire situation, which is say the most moral response, 
is not to throw battery acid in the faces of little girls for the crime of learning to read. Now, of course, of course this is common sense to us, unless you happen to be a bioethicist on the President's Commission at this moment. But I'm saying, at bottom, it is also, these are also truths about biology and neurology and psychology and sociology and economics. It is not unscientific to say that the Taliban are wrong about morality, that the moment we notice that we know anything at all about human well-being, we have to say this. Okay, now, some people with a little philosophical training may be tempted to say, but what if a father wants to burn off his daughter's face with battery acid? You know, who are you to say that he's not as moral as we are? What if he has an alternate conception of well-being that's just as legitimate? Or who's to say that we should care about the well-being of little girls? This is the kind of email I get, incidentally. Now, moral skeptics of this kind, and, and Dr. Craig has essentially endorsed this position, in a way, without God, think that the only way to judge one person's values to be wrong are with respect to another person's values, and all such judgments have to be on par. This is not true. There are many ways for my values to be objectively wrong. They can be, they can be wrong with respect to deeper values that I hold. They can be wrong with respect to deeper values that I would hold if I were only a deeper person. It's clearly possible to value things that will reliably make you miserable in this life. It's clearly possible to be cognitively and emotionally closed to experiences that you would want if you were only intelligent and knowledgeable enough to want them. It is possible not to know what one is missing in life. So things can be right or wrong or good or evil, quite independent of a person's opinions. All right. Well, what are your thoughts here, Josh? I think he does raise a few interesting points, and I do think he does raise a potential objection to his idea, which is things can be objectively right based on different standards. I think that the idea of different standards here is very important to bear in mind because I, I think people can happily grant philosophically the idea that his framework is objectively wrong based on, or at least his his applications of, of ethical decisions can be correct based on his framework of what he considers to be the absolute good, or at least the idea of well-being. Now, of course, that is only one framework of looking at things. Other frameworks could be presented as equal or competing hypotheses, for example. Why put well-being in such a broad thing? Perhaps the, the pursuit of education itself should be an intrinsic good, which is that moral framework. And then based on that moral framework, then you can lead a completely different set of uh, values, which are objectively true based on that framework. So what it seems to suggest, or at least what we're seeming to be presented by Harris's presentation is that even if you can objectively grant that um, the values or the, the truth of certain actions based on a certain framework, you push the, the discussion back another step further to say, well, all right, well, which framework is the objectively correct one? And then now he could say, well, that could be the, that well-being is intuitively desirable, but then, well, someone might also come along and say, well, all right, the education of all people is intuitively desirable. And it seems that that could be something which is equally intuitively granted. And you could do that for a lot of other things as well. And the individual actions in each of those frameworks, although broadly perhaps would be similar, would also have some minute differences as well. For example, if someone says free will is the absolute good and that should be intuitively desirable, that probably is quite similar to education being uh, fully or being the ultimate good. But then that might be different from economic prospering being ultimately good. And, and there are going to be small differences dependent on each of these potential things which can be accepted as intuitively good at, um, at, at, at that large level. So as a result, it's very important for us to understand well, where exactly we're drawing the line. And are we just pushing that objective standard back one's line and actually leaving ourselves with just another philosophical discussion down the line which could ultimately fall down or collapse into subjectivity? I think that's something which is important to keep in mind. Yeah, it seems like to me, you're making a really good point here, Josh, with the idea of like, 
like what do we mean by like well-being like if it's objectively right like for the well-being um what exactly do we mean like by this um do we mean that like if we just take the like the average of like the 8 billion people on a scale of 1 to 10 how happy they are we want that number to be like as high as possible do we mean that like oh like we're looking at like you in your notes you have, like the example of mathematical happiness happiness or like economic flourishing or scientific flourishing um or maybe like trying to make uh, as much mining as possible happen maybe like in space or whatnot so like the question is like what do we mean by like flourishing like what does it mean to be flourishing um and i'm sure like sam harris has like a pretty precise example somewhere that you could find um and i'm sure other people do as well but the question like it's just an important question that we're trying to bring up here of is like well what do you mean by human flourishing because there's a lot of different ideas that kind of relate within the idea of the flourishing of human beings All right, we're going to play the last clip right now. Now, some of you might worry that I haven't defined well-being enough. How can, how can something this loose as a concept be the, the, the benchmark of, of uh, objective value? Well, consider by analogy the concept of physical health. Physical health is very difficult to define. You know, it, it used to be that if you were healthy, you could expect to live to the ripe old age of 40. You know, now our lifespan, our life expectancy has doubled in the last 150 years. What, what does health mean? Okay, well, it has something to do with not always vomiting, not being in excruciating pain, not running a fever. Okay, but how, how fast should a healthy person be able to run? That question might not have an answer. Okay, but this does not make the, the, the question of health vacuous. Okay, it doesn't make it merely a matter of opinion or a cultural construction. But the distinction between a healthy person and a dead one is about as clear and consequential as any we ever make in science. Okay, and notice that no one is ever tempted to attack the philosophical underpinnings of medicine with questions like, well, who are you to say that not always vomiting is healthy? What if you meet someone who wants to vomit and he wants to vomit until he dies? How could you argue that he is not as healthy as you are? In talking about morality and human values, I think we really are talking about mental health and the health of societies. And the truth is, science has always been in the values business. We simply cannot speak of facts without resorting to values. I mean, consider the simplest statement of scientific fact. Water is two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen. This seems as value-free an utterance as human beings ever make. But what do we do when someone doubts the truth of this proposition? All we can do is appeal to scientific values, the value of understanding the world, the value of evidence, the value of logical consistency. What if someone says, well, that's not how I choose to think about water. Okay, I'm a biblical chemist, and I read in Genesis 1 that God created water before he created light. So I take that to mean that there were no stars. So there were no stars to fuse helium and hydrogen into heavier elements like oxygen. Therefore, there was no oxygen to put in the water. So either God created, either water has no oxygen, or God created special oxygen to put in the water. But I don't think he would do that, because that would be biblically inelegant. Okay, what, what can we say to such a person? Okay, all we can do is appeal to scientific values. And if he doesn't share those values, the conversation is over. Okay, if someone doesn't value evidence, what evidence are you going to provide to prove that they should value it? If someone doesn't value logic, what logical argument could you provide to show the importance of logic? Okay, so this, this, I think this split between facts and values should look really strange to you on its face. I mean, what are we really saying when we say that science can't be applied to the most important questions in human life? Okay, we're saying that when we get our biases out of the way, when we, when we most fully rely on clear reasoning and honest observation, when, when intellectual honesty is at its zenith, well, then those efforts have no application whatsoever to the most important questions in human life. But that is precisely the mood you cannot be in to answer the most important questions in human life. It would be very strange if that were so. All right. So there's the end of Sam's opening statement. Josh, kind of what are, you, what are your thoughts here? I think that's a very interesting point that he raises, especially between the gap between is and not, because I do think he does raise some other ideas in relation to what we've already discussed, and I don't think we need to really go over them. Um, too much here, but I do think his distinction between is and not is something which is very 
important because on one hand we look at is autodistinction in philosophy as something which is like well all right there are scientific values and then as a result we cannot make really moral statements about that and what sam harris is trying to do is say well actually let's collapse that distinction because when we're talking about things uh, analytically when we're when we're analyzing concepts we're implicitly relying on some fundamental conceptual or at least moral structure and perhaps that is true and in some sense i would agree with him that when we're discussing philosophy or whatever we're talking about there are going to be hidden assumptions or at least hidden psychological frameworks in our minds which tell us well all right the truth should be pursued when you're um, calculating our mathematics now of course that's one thing to recognize that there's a connection there but i think also it's a very important thing for us to do is to separate it for the sake of analysis and what i mean by that is is for example when we're discussing about the problem of evil and of course everyone most people in this landscape would have raised the problem of evil or interacted with it in some point on one hand, there is a conceptual discussion of the problem of evil, and on the other hand, there's a conceptual problem. Of course, it's very difficult to, if you're looking at it holistically, to separate the two. For example, when an atheist says, well, okay, look at the Holocaust or, or whatnot, it's very difficult for us, at least if you're looking at it holistically, to say, well, oh, well, that's just a mere logical framework. But at the same time, when it comes to the debate on the problem of evil, the atheist is ultimately saying, well, all right, that problem of evil or that ex example of the holocaust is just a mere variable in our discussion on the problem of evil now someone might say well that's callous but at the same time that's kind of the point of the argument is to say well all right there's an example of x which makes the existence of god improbable and what, what the reason why i'm raising the problem of evil is because i think it's a very good example for how even though something which is so wrought or something which is so intertwined with existential or at least phenomenological connotations it's important for us to recognize that when we're discussing the problem of evil we sometimes have to just recognize that for this moment, we are talking about this analytically, we're talking about this conceptually. And after that, then we can talk about the holistic picture. So in some sense, I think when we're talking about this distinction, when Sam Harris is saying, well, all right, there's actually a further connection between the two, it's important for us to recognize that even though there is a connection of the two, it doesn't mean that we cannot separate them and analyze them separately. Because I think it's only when we are analyzing it separately that we can actually further the discussion further instead of just saying, well, all right, there's actually a connection all the time. While there is one, that connection can, in many situations, take away from the actual philosophical work which is being done. Because if someone told the atheist, well, you can't turn to any of these horrible situations just because, well, suffering is goes way beyond our mere analytical thinking of it, well, then you could just throw away the logical problem of evil and the evidential problem of evil prima facie, which I don't think is something that anyone would be willing to do because there is a philosophical question there anyways regardless of the significance that that suffering has had so i think that it's very important for sam harris to separate between the is and oughts even though there is of course as a human an intrinsic connection between the two yeah i think that's really well said josh and i don't really have much to add um beyond maybe like we can just have that like i just want to go back to those questions about like um it seems to me like when i listen to this debate um and listen to this opening statement this is like the fourth or fifth time through i believe um maybe the third i don't know i haven't been counting um the question like there's to me this question of like okay sam does a really good job of showing like there's there are these roots of like moral value like we have these intuitions about like uh at a fundamental sense of like what's right what's wrong and sam does a really good job of illustrating that um the question to me then becomes and it's an open question uh that is like kind of left that I, I don't think it really answers super well in this debate is like well, okay, well, why are these moral truths there? Like, why do they exist? And like, how do we come to know them? Uh, and questions along these lines. And these are open questions that we really have to explore and think carefully about. Um, and yeah, that's kind of just 
where I'm at here is like, I really appreciate what Sam does. Um, and now there's this question of like, okay, like why are these truths there and how do we know them? And I think as a Christian, like there might be some good answers and like that the Christian theist can like give to these questions. Yes, I completely agree with your uh, presentation of, of Sam's position. I think that there's a difference between reaching the idea of the agreement that there are these objective values and also how do we get to those objective values? How do we grant the frameworks in which we're discussing and debating? Now, I do think that his discussion on, well, where do these come from? It seems to always fluctuate between well-being being something which is scientifically demonst demonstrable or being demonstrably good and also it being something which everyone agrees upon. And it seems to me that he fluctuates between the two because I remember I was doing a review of his debate with Jordan Peterson on my channel a while back. And it seemed to me that in that discussion, he was presenting objectivity almost as a view of trans subjectivity, which is the idea that something is true or something's objectively true if everyone comes to the same conclusion that that is true. Now, of course, you could say, well, is that really the case? And, and some people in the past have said yes, and some people have said no to that debate. But at least it seems in a lot of situations that Sam Harris might be saying, well, all right, well-being is objectively true because literally every single person in the world, regardless of background, or at least most people, seem to be working towards that direction. And, and well, is that a good way to go around arguing? Perhaps it is, or at least it is a good way to find common ground. But of course, then that leads to further question of, well, how reliable is moral intuition? And of course, once we get to the coming ground, how are we meant to justify the fact that there is a coming ground and why do we come to that conclusion as well? So I think I think that, as you rightly say, that Sam Harris's opening statement is a very good place to probe further in our moral discussions and, and really jump use as a jumping board to understand more about what we mean when we're talking about objective morality and what do we mean when we say God is necessary or cry for that objective morality mm. to exist. Yeah, for sure. Um, Josh, anything else you want to say about like Sam Harris or God or morality before we start to wrap up here? Um, not really. I, I, though I do actually think there's an interesting um, point which uh, G.E. Moore does write. And of course, I've, I've been connecting it quite a lot to utilitarianism here and consequentialist thinking. But I do think it's something which, it, which is just for those philosophy geeks out there might find it quite interesting to see this um, connection is that uh, Moore's open, um, open question argument is essentially the idea that which can be summarized as if, if a certain proposition is viewed as analytically equivalent to the good, then, well, you end up with a tautological statement, which is, which if applied to Sam Harris's case is, is, is if he is arguing that well-being is good, and then you just use logical language to say, well, well-being is good, that means good is well-being, then if you say, well, all right, okay, well, you end up with saying good is good, then, well, you don't really get anywhere with your discussion, it, it collapses into a tautology, and and, and that argument, that argument by Moore can be applicable, I think, to Sam Harris's argument in, in a certain sense, if he is truly following that consequentialist lineup, or e even if he's just making that thing that well-being is equivalent to good, which he seems to be making, then, well, I think that further problems arise and, and perhaps one has to develop his argument, perhaps a bit further to make it hold against such uh, objection. Mm, that's an interesting question, Josh. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Josh. I really appreciate your time. As always, this is like the 100 millionth episode um, that you've been on for. Um, how can people like follow you, connect with you, things like that, in case they're just meeting this Josh Yen guy that's on his apologetics? So um, you can check me out on uh, Philosophy for All. That's my uh, philosophy YouTube channel. Or you could go check out um, my work on www.josh-yen.com. You can go check that out. You can find my publications there and you could find out um, whatever I upload there. And it, it kind of keeps track of all the different works or projects I'm working on currently. So if you want to stay up to date with all my different projects then go check, check it out at uh, my website at www.josh-yen.com.
Yen.com. Mm, that's super cool, Josh. And I love that you have a website now. I think that's something that's new compared to the last time that you were on. So congrats to that. Thank you. Um, thank you, everyone, for coming and listening today. If you value what we do, uh, please consider subscribing to Here in Apologetics. Uh, just be huge. Um, be sure to subscribe on YouTube. Is not everything gets released on podcast versions. And, yeah, that's that. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, no new patrons to thank. This is the last time. But if you value what we do, uh, you can also become a patron at patreon.com. So you can apologize. And you can support for as little as a dollar a month, and that'd be huge. Uh, but, Josh, one last time, thank you so much for coming on today. And thank you very much for having me. Have a good one, everyone, and God.